So as we get started this morning, if you are here or been here a couple of times or maybe not been throughout the study, we've been in the, the, the weeks of Advent and basically what we've done is this is like an add-on week that, that's not usually historically if you're a part of Advent, which just means the coming, it, it speaks of the coming of Christ. Uh, if you're a part of that, you kind of, it, it ends um, on Christmas Eve. So we're going to add another two weeks actually, but here's a week this week. And what we're going to do is we're going to, we've been looking really awaiting the first coming, looking at all that, and now we're looking to the second coming. And then next week we'll spend some time talking about what are we to do as a church in light of those things that are happening. So I, I want you to see that and understand that. And so I'll say week one, we looked at the Old Testament promise of a Savior, and we said the Old Testament said Christ was coming. And we looked the second week at Christ's birth, and we said all those promises that God made were perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Week three, we looked at the shepherds and the angels and how they joyfully were excited about what um, the, 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 the announcement came and the angels were sent down to speak to the shepherds. The shepherds went and shared with other people because when they heard about this, this should brought great joy, and it does bring joy, and we should rejoice in Christ's coming. The fourth thing we saw was that the promise was for all people. And what we said was that, that this, this wonderful message that people rejoice over is a message that's to go throughout the whole world and that we get to participate in that. It's a very beautiful thing. Now, a way to kind of lay those out, I say God promised to send Jesus. He came. His coming was announced and joyfully shared, and it was for the whole world. That kind of summarizes where we've been. This week, as we're looking into this, we're going to say, we're going to look at the promise of Jesus' return. So he came the first time and he's coming a second time. And so that's kind of where we're going to be today. And I think it's important um, to understand that. Now, another thing just to kind of get for, for a moment is just to stop and think about how the Old Testament people would have viewed the coming of the Messiah. They would have seen it primarily the way you feel that, that even the understandings and interpretations of people uh, in the Old Testament and, and through, you know, in that time as they were waiting for the Messiah, they're waiting for Jesus to come and, and, and they're thinking that everything's going to happen then. It's kind of like one coming. And we've talked about this before, but it's like two mountain, uh, if there were two mountain peaks back to back, as you're driving up, you think there's only one and the closer you get, you realize there's two. That's kind of the, the picture here. It's like, that Christ was coming and they didn't understand how all that was going to work out. But God, here's how God does this. Oftentimes as we read the Bible, we understand that He is, as you start in the Old Testament, throughout the New, as He's revealing His plan pieces by pieces. And the further you go down biblical history, the more you grasp, kind of. So that's kind of where we are. And so I just want you to think about that because the first coming of Christ was about bringing a relationship with God, bringing peace with God. For us, it was about restoration of that peace, uh, but it was not a peace that was visible. It was kind of a not of this world thing. And so in this first coming of Christ, He came as the suffering servant. In His suffering, He's going to disarm all of our enemies and He's going to defeat sin, death, hell, the grave. He, he was going to reverse the curse in His first coming. Uh, we were under the curse after the fall. He's come to reverse it. And we see that in His life. He, he reverses the curse by sickness. He would reverse that and make someone healthy. He reversed the curse by someone died and He brought them to life. He's, he's the great curse reverser and so we kind of we're seeing that but it, there's an element of the fact that you would think 
that if all these enemies were defeated, wouldn't we see the, 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 that visibly? And so it, there's a sense in which even Jesus was asked about His kingdom. And he said, my kingdom's not of this world. So the first coming is somewhat of a, an, an invisible thing where Christ is coming and doing all these things, but, but we're still walking by faith. We're looking at these things in faith and believing that what He said He did, He accomplished. And so there were some visible things, but at the, at the outset, I think it's just important to understand the first coming of Christ was not as open as it's going to be in the second coming. All things will be made right. It will be visible to all. And so I think it's important to kind of get that, to understand that. So we're walking by faith, trusting in what Christ has done and trusting that He's going to return and set up His kingdom in a way that will visibly shock the whole world and transform all things. So I just think, again, like I said, I want you to grasp that because it's very important that we understanding that for us. Now, as we keep moving forward, I just want you to think about um, a couple more things. Is, is like when we're, when we're waiting, like we're living in this season of waiting, it's very hard sometimes to think about, oh, Christ will return. You think, well, it's a long way off. We don't know how far off it is. <clears throat> we don't know when Christ will come. And sometimes as we wait, you might think, man, it's just never going to get here. But today, as you're looking at this, you're saying, how can I prepare for the wait? Like to wait rightly and prepare for Christ's coming. How, how might I do that? And so that's some of the stuff that we're going to be dealing with. The second coming of Christ, how to live in, in, in anticipation of that. Um, the last uh, couple of days, I've been out duck hunting with my brother or my two brothers, their two sons and my cousin. And uh uh, several months ago, I went to um, to Mississippi to see my older brother Jason, and his son uh, Chandler said, "We need to have a meeting." And I was like, "Let's have a meeting," you know. And so the last night I was there at their house, he was like, "We got to call." Uh, he calls him Uncle Mikey, but it, he's our cousin. I mean, we got to call Uncle Mikey, and we've got to sit down and have a meeting over the phone and write down the things that we need to do and get prepared for this event. I mean, it's going to be amazing. So we sat down. And we wrote down the things, and he was like, what are we going to need to eat? And my cousin likes candy. If you knew him, you would know. And he was like, we need Reese's, Kit Kats. And so they're making this list of all these, and it was all candy, you know. But it was like, he's thinking, like, I want, I'm anticipating the day that we go on this trip together and duck hunt, and so how do I prepare for that? And I think that's kind of how we have to live. We have to think and we anticipate that day, just like you do at Christmas time. You anticipate the day and everybody prepares and maybe you give gifts, maybe you don't. But, but still, oftentimes that's what we've done in this culture and you prepare for it and you're kind of waiting for that day to come. Exciting. It's anticipation. It's, and that's kind of what we should live. In Christ coming, we should wait for that, long for that, seek to understand um, how we might live most to God's glory in this time. So there are six things I want you to understand about Jesus' return today which is, there, there's several things, and we're going to walk through that. First is, Jesus' return will be visible. I mean, it will be seen by all. Second is, Jesus will return not as a suffering servant, but reigning Lord. Third, Jesus will return to rescue us from this age and usher in the new. Fourth, Jesus will return at the perfect time. Fifth, Jesus will return, His return will be unexpected and cataclysmic. Sixth, Jesus' return should cause us to want to store up what cannot be burned up. Those are the things. We'll look at those together and move through. Ready? Luke chapter uh, 21, verses 27-28. 
And then they, they will see the Son of Man coming. So we'll start there. We're saying they will see Him. It is a visible coming. The coming of Christ, He says, after these things, if we were to look at all Luke 21, which are not today, there are all kinds of wars and <clears throat> nations rising against nations. There were earthquakes and famines and pestilence and all this kind of stuff. The church would be persecuted. There would be battles and struggles. All of that is taking place. And then Christ will visibly come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's something of a bursting forth. It's going to make noise. There's going to be this coming. People will know. They will see it. It will be visible. So I think it's important to understand that. His coming will not be hidden. There's a sense in which when you were looking at the first coming, you, you, you spend this time looking at it as you read about it. Many people didn't understand who Jesus was. They were confused. In the end, when Christ returns, there will be no confusion. All will know that He is Lord. All will know it. The Bible even speaks of that, that there will be uh, everyone will bow the knee before Him. And so there's a sense in which all will get this. The whole world will see Him. Some will experience this with great joy and some will experience it in fear. So I think it's important that we note that. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is this. Jesus will return not as a suffering servant, but as reigning Lord. Now notice what it says. He will come in a cloud with power and great glory. You know, it's kind of like, and that's what I mentioned earlier, Jesus in His first coming he showed power. People were like overwhelmed by his power, but there were many who had that confused about whether where the power came from and all this kind of stuff. All this stuff will be clear when he returns. Even though he did some of those things in his life as a servant who came and served us, when he comes the second time, all will know he is Lord. All will understand and grasp his power and great glory. It's interesting. Even Jesus said. That his authority, there's there's an authority that he had come from heaven. He said to Pilate that that that, that he could he he could do anything while he was here, but he chose to humble himself as a servant again. But when he returns, we just have to get that in our minds. He will return differently. He will turn return as the great King of the universe, and all will see him, and they will understand that he is the one who reigns. Now, I want you to understand that, and I want you to see it in Revelation one. So turn to Revelation 1 in, in verse 13, and I want you to kind of just note this real quick. Because you might say, you know, you kind of get this picture of Jesus, and oftentimes we present Him in His first coming, and He's this humble servant, and He's walking around, and, and everybody's like, you know, some people say hi to Him, some people are mad at Him, all's well. But I want you just to see a picture of Him for the future when Christ returns John seeing a vision of the Christ says, and in the midst of the lampstands in verse 13 of chapter 1, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like the white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, notice what he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. You see here, before when we saw him, he's clothed in his humiliation. Now, kind of the picture is he's clothed in his exaltation. And all people see that and they grasp that. He is the king of the universe. He, he is the one that you would say before he was clothed in that way, but now in splendor, before he bowed as the servant of all, then all will bow before him. Before he was beaten, bruised, and hung on a cross to die, then he will come with a sword and lead his troops to ultimate victory. It's a total kind of re kind of understanding. Like when you think about it, you've got to rethink of this because you say Jesus came in his first coming as a suffering servant, and he comes in his second coming as the reigning Lord. So it's going to be visible. He's going to present himself as this reigning Lord. The third thing you see is Jesus will return to rescue us from this age and usher in the new. So go back to Luke 21 and you'll see that in verse 28. Verse 28 says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus has redeemed His people. It's like saying He saved His people. Jesus saved His people. And yet we would say also He's going to save them. He's saying in the midst of this suffering, that's what there's something going on in Luke 21 where you say there's all this trouble and, and there's trouble in the natural realm, but then there's also trouble with, uh, with people that are, that are really like trying to walk with the Lord. They're going to face all kinds of trials in this life. And then he says, but then there's coming a day when you need to just lift your head up. Stand up tall. Christ is coming. He's going to redeem you. He's going to save you. He's going to rescue you from this old sinful age. This age of darkness and sadness and, and war and all those things. He's going to restore all things. Lift up your heads and, and hope in God. It's like there's this group of people. You ever been downtrodden? Beaten down in a way? You're struggling? The picture here is when you're in that state of brokenness and, and someone says, lift your head up. It's okay. Sometimes you see a little kid played a baseball game and they lost, and they're all like, mm -hmm. "But this is a lot bigger than that, right?" Because he's saying, "All the trouble you face now, lift your heads up. Christ has coming, and He's going to save you and rescue you." Sometimes when we lose someone in our family, or your health is depleting, or your job is really difficult, or you're in a world where maybe war would be at the, at the central kind of thing going on around you a relationship struggle, all those kinds of things where you try to share the gospel. Sometimes when I'm, you want to speak to someone, it's like you keep hitting a brick wall and you get down and He's saying, lift your head up. You have hope. Jesus is coming. You have a bright future. This world is passing away and all that is with it, but Christ has come to rescue us and He will rescue us and He will restore all things. He's going to bring in an age of joy of no more sadness or death or disease or disorder or war or all those things, they will go away and we will be eternally in His presence. Lift up your head and see this. I think it's important that you understand. Now, I want you to go to one other passage we're going to look at this week, and it's 2 Peter chapter 3. And as you do, just remember, Jesus, we said He will visibly return. 
He will rescue us from this age and usher in the new. As you see, the fourth thing I would say is Jesus will return at the perfect time. It's very important to see, and you're going to look at that in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. There's this picture in the first coming that Christ came at the perfect time. Even His his crucifixion was at the perfect time. Jesus said over and over throughout the Gospel of John, my time has not yet come. And then He says, my time has come. And so in God's perfect wisdom, the perfect time of Christ's return will come to pass. It's very clear that we know that. But notice what it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. But again, His timetable is not like ours. A day is as a thousand years, it says. Now, that's kind of like saying, basically, that if you live kind of a normal life in this period of time in the Western world, maybe you're like two hours in a day to God. Your life kind of makes you feel a little small, right? When we think in two hours, we don't think, wow, we don't think like that. But God is not like us. Time is not like the way that we see it. God's ways of doing things are different than ours. But you'll notice here, what does he say? It's not that he's slow, it's that he is merciful. He's kind. Look what he's doing here. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, how do you interpret this verse? This kind of interesting verse. Some people use it for different in different ways. Some people would say about this verse that God without distinction offers salvation to everyone. And wishes in the same way that all would be saved. It's kind of how, in my mind, I think about it. Some people say, hey, this verse proves that, that God hopes that everybody's going to be saved and He works as hard for everybody in every way, in every place, all to be saved. Some people would read this passage and say, if you were reading this, what God is saying is He's not slow about bringing His people in. He's, he's patient as He brings in His people from all over the world throughout all of history. So if He has chosen a people for Himself to be a part of the church, He's going to do that and bring that to pass. And when all of His people come into the flock, then He will be ready to come. Then He will send Jesus. Now, something to think about as you're putting this together. So does God desire that all be saved, but then decree who will actually be saved? It's kind of a question we need to ask. Does God say, I've chosen a people for Myself. I'm going to bring them into the fold. But does He desire at some level that all would come to repentance? A couple of verses that might be helpful here. I'll just read them to you. Ezekiel 18.32, it says, For I have no pleasure, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. It's an idea of saying, turn away from your sin and live. Ezekiel 18.23 Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. It has this idea that God would want all to turn away from their wickedness. All to turn away from their sin. But then you read verses like John 6.37 that say all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
or John 6:44 and 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, how do we deal with this? Because it is God in his perfect time, Christ will come. At his perfect time, he is going to come, and he's going to come and, and rescue his people. But what, what's the waiting period? What's, who's God waiting on to come to Him? Tom Schreiner kind of explains it in this way. And, and he really kind of taking from John Piper speaks of uh, the, the two wills of God. And I thought of an illustration of this at one level. You could say that God desires, their husbands here, He desires that you would all love your wives as you should. He desires that. It's in His Word. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But not all husbands do. So how do you deal with that? Well, somewhere in the secret will of God, God is working out His plan so that some not such good husbands are, are, are married to wives who are growing in godliness as they faced not such a loving husband. And we would say, God is in that. He's working through that to accomplish His will in the life of His people. And we don't really always understand what God is doing in His secret will. But we know in his perfect time, he's accomplishing his plans. So some people, again, like John Piper and Tom Schreiner would say that this passage is saying that God wishes everybody would come and he's patient. He's allowing you today to sit in this service and hear the gospel and hear the message of the gospel. And, and there's a sense in which he's saying all who wants to come, I hate to see any of the wicked perish. Just come. While at the same time, we know in God's infinite wisdom, He is going to bring His people to salvation. He has purposed, He has chosen His people for salvation, and all that He has chosen will come to faith. Regardless of how you read this verse, God is patient and He is, he is, he is bringing His people to Himself. And he, is, he will bring it to pass. And in the perfect time, Christ will return. And I guess the thing for you is to say, are you ready for that? Are you, are you embracing Him? Are you living for Him? Have you turned to Christ? Are you walking with Him all everywhere hearing this message today? I would say repent towards God and trust in Christ. And I also will know in this time, I know that God is going to bring people to Himself from all over the world because He's chosen before the foundation of the world to do so. The next thing we see, maybe the fifth thing you would see about Jesus' return in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So what do we see here? We see Jesus' return will be, it's really, it's going to be unexpected, but also cataclysmic. There's this kind of picture going on there that people, a thief doesn't announce his coming. A thief doesn't send you a letter in the mail and say, hey, next week I'm coming over to visit and take all your stuff. A thief doesn't call you beforehand. He doesn't email you, text you. None of that. He comes in an unexpected time. You don't know when He's coming. Jesus said of that, no one knows the, the time of His return. He will come like a thief. He will come in an unexpected time. We do not know when Christ will return. 
Also, we know there's this cataclysmic kind of picture here that when He comes, things are going to happen. You'll notice in 2 Peter 3, 5 and 3, 7, both of these speak about the heavens and the earth. What, what's happening here? When He comes, and it's kind of language we don't read all the time, but when He comes, what is He going to do? He is going to bring judgment on the earth, both in heavens and the earth. Both of those here together will be destroyed by fire. Jesus is not coming in a way where, it's, again, where He's just walking along, talking to people, sharing this message, and, and, and loving on people. He's coming to destroy this old present age and renew it. He's doing both of those. But we have to see that. And I think it's very important that we understand that. That Jesus' return is going to be unexpected and it will catch people off guard and those who are in rebellion against Him and all of this hostile old creation will be dealt with then. So again, you say, am I prepared for His coming? Am I ready for that? The sixth thing you see here, now look at verses 11-14. through 14. The sixth thing here is Jesus' return should cause us to want to store up what cannot be burned up. Look at verses 11 through 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. So let's look what we see here. First, the negative. There's a warning here. Jesus will return and consume the wicked and destroy the earth and all that had no eternal significance. So what should we do? We should live lives of holiness and godliness. Now here's the thing. He is coming and He's going to address all of these things. He's going to address all wickedness and all immorality and all sin and all those things that are a part of this fallen old world. All the hostility against God that's part of this age. He's going to address that. He's going to deal with it. He is not going to let this go on forever. This world is not a forever world. It's not an ever a world that will, will last forever. That's important that we know that. Because Jesus is going to come back and He's going to come back in a way that everybody's going to be blown away that He's there. And when He's there, He's going to show up and He's going to address all these things and deal with them very clearly. And I think that's important that we understand that. His day is coming. And all will be dealt with. Everything, both in heaven and earth, will be completely and utterly burned up. So that He can bring about His new creation. So the negative is this warning. There's a warning. Listen, don't live in this world and embody it and embrace it and love it and cherish it. If you do, you will join in its end. You will join in its destruction. You will find in, in your future, you will live among those whom you've treasured most and those things that you've treasured most. And if it's things that are earthly and worldly and rebellion against God, then you will get to experience what they experience. Total and absolute destruction. Now, why does the church need to hear this? Why would you and I need to hear that? I mean, why do we need to hear that? We need to hear that because those warnings are means by which 
we get sobered up and say, okay, I want to live righteously. I want to live a holy life. Sometimes just hearing the fact that, I mean, growing up, knowing that my dad had a standard that I had to live by, knowing that if I broke those standards and he caught me, there was going to be a lot to pay. Knowing that kept me from being foolish, or more foolish than I was. Let's say that. Certainly did a lot of foolish things. But it, but it, had, it had a way of stopping me at some point where I thought, if I go beyond this and He catches me, life for me will radically change and I've feared that. For, for the church, we need some of that too. A healthy fear of God? That's not a bad thing. Sometimes we kind of tell people like, well, there shouldn't be any kind of like in this day and age, don't, don't say anything about like judgment or fearing God or just like trouble coming if you mess up or continue in your wicked ways. Or Don't say that, man. It's just, don't talk about that. But God talks about that very honestly that there's coming a day of judgment. And so when the church hears that, they say, I don't want to live in this way anymore. I've got to back off from embracing the world's ways. I don't want to walk in those ways. Because I know that those ways will end in total destruction. It's healthy. It's just like the same thing. It's healthy for a parent to say, hey, there's standards, kid. You know, there's standards. We love you. We got standards. You broke them. You pay. It's a way of saying, hey, this is great. Some mamsy-pamsy parent that never does that, what does their kid think? About the holiness of God. About consequences. They don't understand that. It's crazy. So I think it's important that we grasp that because we say God is good at doing this. God will say, here's the warning. Don't continue in wickedness. If you do, you will, be, you will dwell among the wicked eternally. Then God comes over here and says, here's the promise. You'll turn from your ways and follow Me. Trust Me. Walk in obedience to Me by the grace that I provide. By not trusting in your own righteousness to save you. You're trusting in what Christ did. But in the power of Christ working in you, now walk in a good way. Here's the promise that goes with that. A new heavens and a new earth. What does that look like? What is the new heavens and the new earth? Because here's the thing. It's not just that I'm afraid. It's not just afraid of hell. Sometimes people present the Gospel, I'm afraid of hell. I didn't want to go to hell. They told me I was going to go to hell. I threw up a prayer, man. Who wouldn't? But then it's over here saying, but here's the promise of these things. If you turn from those ways and you trust in Christ, here's what you gain. You gain Him. You gain life with Him. You gain a future with Him. You get to experience the new heavens and the new earth with Him eternally. What does the new heavens and the new earth look like? It looks like the opposite of this age. You know where people lie and steal and cheat 
and are bitter and angry and, 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 and just constantly coming up with all kinds of ways to do somebody wrong and people hurt you and it, there's death and disease and, and your grandmother gets cancer, your father gets this, all these things, your child's sick, all that stuff, all the brokenness of this age, everything about it from lying, stealing, cheating, disease, disorder, death, all that stuff, that's what this age is. That's where this age ends. That's the future for you in this age. It's more of that. But over here, it is life and joy and peace and relationship with God and and, and people walking by the Spirit in total and absolute union with God and one another. It's loving God. It's loving people. It's having the heart to do so. It's living in in a world that's renewed better than even Narnia. Right? It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. There's more joy there than we could ever even grasp. But look what it says. According to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here's the deal. Here's a Christian. A Christian is living this way. He is, he is hoping in the future with Christ. He's longing for that day. He, but, but here's the thing. He's even become a citizen. He or she is a citizen of that age. And so living in this world, they're always, a Christian's uncomfortable in this world at some level. Certainly there's fun things, enjoyable things. We should be people that enjoy life. I don't not in any way be like, oh, everything's bad all the time. There's a lot of joys in this life. God, God affords that to us. Uh, whacking those ducks. It's joy. There's a lot of fun in that. I don't know if I'd say joy, but I get happy when they start, you know. Anyway, when I'm duck hunting. But I'm just saying, like, there's some joys in it, but there's still a lot of trouble, and there's an uncomfortable kind of feeling about this age because there's so much, again, darkness and and, and just evil, and and even in our own hearts we struggle. So a Christian is a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, but still living in this present age with all that that goes on. They're awaiting this day. Where they'll live, where who they've been, the citizenship that they have will become right and renewed and true, and God will come down, and really heaven will come crashing down on earth. And really, we're not just looking forward to heaven, we're looking forward to heaven coming down to this earth and renewing all things, and heaven and earth being married together. That's what we're awaiting. Where God's ways will dwell upon this earth, will righteousness will dwell on this earth, where it won't stumble in the streets anymore, but it will move through the streets, and righteousness will be the way that, that the default of all in God's kingdom. It's a beautiful day of joy and celebration and wonder and amazement of God's glorious purposes. So for us as Christians, we should be eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. We know it's going to come. We know it's going to be a visible return. We know that His return will show He will come as reigning Lord over all. We know that to be true. We know that He will return and rescue us from this age and bring us into the new. We know that all these wonderful things will happen in His perfect time. We know that God's going to judge all of His enemies and then set up His kingdom. All of that should blow us away. We should long so much for His return. We should pray for it. We should seek it with all our might. We should be like the early church who would say, come Lord Jesus, come. We should reiterate like in the end of Revelation, come, come Lord Jesus. The Spirit says come. The Bride says come. 
all of us for long for His coming. Because as Christians, we long for the new age to come bursting in. We long for all sin to be dealt with. We long to be renewed internally and externally and dwell in a place of great renewal. So I hope today as you think about Christ's coming and you think about the Advent season we celebrate it, you look back to the cross, reminded what Christ did for us, you look forward to the future, what He's promised to do for us, and you live in light of that by seeking to live in a way that would bring honor and glory to His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the joy of knowing You. We thank You, Lord, that this is not our home. That although we experience fun things together as families and as church family and as friends all over, we enjoy those times. Lord, we know that these, these times that we live in, although there are some joys, they're also filled with a lot of sadness, a lot of sin, a lot of brokenness. Lord, we long to be in the new age, in the new world where when You return, we long to be with You. And so we, we can experience all the joys of life with You in Your kingdom. Keep us there, Lord. Keep us reminded of that so that we would live as citizens of that kingdom in this present world. In Christ's name. Amen.